Hey, this is John, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adult Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org forward slash young adults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Go ahead and pull out James chapter four. We're going to start at verse one, okay? It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with this world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say? He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord to God's people. Praise be to God. Well, I'd just like to say to you, oh, wow, this is reverbing. It always feels so weird. It's so big. Well, I just want to say buckle up because this passage is a doozy. Um, I mean, anytime you're called an adulterer, It's always like, oh, wow, okay, cool. Thanks, James. So I don't know if if any of you um, have ever had a friend, um, and and I say you used to have a friend, um, but you used to have a friend who, uh, they got into a dating relationship, and then you never saw them again. Anybody anybody have a friend like that before? Okay. And maybe if you are that friend, this is a wake-up call. Your friends miss you. (laughs) Give them a call, respond to their texts. Um, but usually when that happens, you know, you, you, might, you might see them on the street, you might see them at Chipotle or Chick-fil-A and be like, man, I haven't seen you forever. How are you? And then it's like, you look at them, you're like, you're so different. What, what's happened to you? you? You've changed or, or they're just like, they pretend that you don't even exist because they're like, because their relationship is all that's consuming to them. And, and you're like, but, but, you know, and if this happened to you, deep down, you're kind of offended. You're like, I thought I meant something. I thought this was special. I thought what we had was special. It's okay that you date this person, but I thought what we had was special. And you just kind of take it personally. And, and, and I'm not talking from experience. Uh, I probably was that person. Anytime I started dating someone, I was like, peace out, suckers. I finally got a relationship. Suckers, you're still single. And then like, I'd be single like the day after. I'd be like, oh, Thank you for welcoming me back. Thank you so much. 
But, but you would look at that relationship and be like, that, that, that relationship is problematic. Like, like that, that seems like a toxic relationship. Like this person that you start dating uh, takes up all their time and refuses to let them spend any time with anybody else. And so you look at them and be like, that's, that's a problematic relationship. And so in tonight's passage, James is looking at the Christians that he's talking to. And he says, listen, you, you guys have engaged in a relationship with a partner that is not good for you. That as, especially as a Christian, you have no business being in relationship with them. And so in tonight's text, James says, hey, hey, Christian, you're, you don't, I don't think you know it, but I'm gonna make it very clear to you. You're in relationship with the world. <laughs> and and, and, it's, and it's, it's messing things up. You're fighting each other. You're blowing things up. You're saying things that are not great about each other. You're, 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 you're actually fighting God too. Like this is a really problematic and troubling relationship that you're in. And, and I'm calling out to you to make sure you understand this is what you should not be doing. And now, you know, as, as I was thinking about this text, I was talking about Rachel, because I, I was talking with Rachel, not about Rachel, talking with Rachel about this text. Because I was like, man, like what, like what, what is God trying to say about this text? Because like I read this text and, and, and as, your, as your pastor, I can say this very, very confidently. I don't know how much of this applies. Like when I think, like, I don't, I don't think, I don't read this text and be like, dang, man, this is about our young adult community. You know, they're, they're, they're in friendship with the world and, and, and they're, they're overtly like, like practicing sin. And no, like, like I, I can be honest, I can look at you and say without a doubt, and for those of you I do, I do know, I don't know all of you, but for those I do know, you love Jesus. Like, I, I wanna give you an encouraging word just to begin, as hard as this text may be. I know y'all love Jesus. But here's the thing. The more you love Jesus, the more you anger Satan. Because there is a mission in which God has granted to the church and not even granted, but has invited the church to step into. And the mission that the church has, give, has been given is to dismantle and destroy all the works of the enemy on this earth. And the more you love Jesus, the more you're about that mission. And the more you're about that mission, the more you seek to do it well and seek to complete it. And the more you do your job well as believers of Jesus Christ, the more Satan gets upset because you're actually destroying all of his efforts. So then Satan looks at the church and goes, how can I get them to stop being about this mission? What can I throw in their way? What can I entice them with to steer them off the path of following after Jesus? And this is the relationship that James is talking about. What, what Satan throws in our way, what Satan throws in the way and, and could throw and is probably throwing in the midst of this young adult community is that he's going, the Satan is going to try to entice you and try to convince you that you can double dip with, with God, that you can have a little bit of God and have a little bit of the world. That you can practice these things with Jesus, feel holy on Thursday and Sunday, Maybe an extra day if you go, I don't know, to YWAM. Or the other days, you kind of just do it with the world. You live it up and you do as you please. And, and, and it's easier than you think for that to start occurring in our hearts. And so tonight, what we're gonna talk about is how can we as a community of followers of Jesus, how can we who have been given this mandate by God to dismantle the works of the enemy, how can we as followers of Jesus protect ourselves from getting into a relationship with the world? 
Let's begin with James chapter four, verse one. Let's read this together. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So and instead, of, instead of James immediately being like, here's the answer, here's what I want you to know, do this, do X, Y, and Z, and you'll be fine. He, what he wants to do first is explain the costs of following after the world. He's gonna wanna explain to you, this is, this is what happens when you get into a relationship. It's, have you ever seen like those, uh, those smoking commercials? Where it's like, this is, this is this person before smoking. This is this person's mouth after smoking. And you're like, ah, I never want to smoke again. I don't know. I don't even watch TV anymore or like those commercials don't come up, but I, I kind of remember those. And, and this, kind of, this is kind of James's infomercial. It's like, this is, this is what happens to you after you start messing with the world. He says, you start quarreling with one another. So, so James begins this section to this. So he's, remember, he's talking to Jewish Christians in the early church. That's his primary audience. And he begins to, to talk about this fighting that happens uh, between, the Jewish, the, between the Jewish Christians. In other words, it's fighting that's happening between the family of faith. But this is more than just like a childish fight. This is more than being like, mom, Anthony spit in my food today. I'm like, shut up, Samantha. You smell like butt. You're like, this is not, this is not that kind of fighting. It's way more serious. Like it's really, like I know, I'm, but it's way more serious. The words that James uses, he says quarrels and fights. And now we think about them, we think just like a little, a little, a little scatter, a little fight, but, but these Greek words are only used to describe two enemies in battle. In fact, the Greek word for quarrel is this word polemos. And it means to go to war with an enemy. And I think it's important though for us to get the word picture that James is trying to get for us to understand. And, and the best way to understand is actually not to look at the New Testament, but to look at the, at the Old Testament. And so the, the Old Testament equivalent for polemos is the word milchama. And now milchama is a word that pops up all over the Old Testament because what do you know? People were always fighting in the Old Testament, this kingdom and that kingdom and that person and that king and that queen and that thing. And so they're always milchamaing, right? So they're always going to war with one another. So, so I looked through all of them. I was like, ah, I'm just gonna pick two because then we'll be here for a while. So here's two references that came to mind as I was thinking through this text. Uh, Joshua 10 verse 24. So Joshua is the protege of, uh, the protege of Moses and, and Moses was the one that God used to free the Israelites out of Egypt and now Joshua's job was now to get them into the promised land. And so in the promised land, in the land of Canaan, there were these kings that they would have to fight. And so this is verse 24 says, and when they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war of Milchama, who had gone with him. And he says, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And so what is being expressed here is this is what war looks like. It looks like you conquer somebody. And when they say they put your, your foot on the necks of your enemies, it means that you've beaten them into submission. And honestly, the only reason why you're putting your, ne your foot on the neck is to stabilize them so you can take out your sword and, you know, okay, right. So that's what they're doing. 
And then another part, 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 8. This is David speaking about an interaction he had with God. And, and David's longest, greatest desire was to build a temple, a place of worship for God. But, but God says no. Now, now hear why God says no. David says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, you, David, have shed much blood and have waged great wars, great milchamas. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. And he says, listen, the reason I won't let you build this holy place for me is because you got blood on your hands. And so just in these two references, in these two milchamas, what we've seen to be true about warfare is that it is both bloody and it requires, uh, and, and is destructive, so now, interestingly, James uses this word to describe who? The people he's talking to, brothers and sisters. He's saying, listen, why is there this bloody and destructive fight happening between you, brothers and sisters? Because that's what he's talking to. He's talking to Christians, not unbelievers. He's talking to people in the faith. And he's telling them, listen, he's asking them like, to, to, to think, what is going on with you? What would drive you to partake in such destructive behavior with one another? Alec Moitier, who's an Irish theologian, he is speaking about this passage. He said, James chooses the vocabulary of war to express controversies and quarrels, animosities and bad feeling among Christians, not because there is no other way of saying it, but because there is no other way of expressing the horror of it. This is what James is getting at. This quarreling and fighting is horrific. And these words quarrel and battle are meant to describe two enemies and yet they're being used to describe the family of God. What could possibly drive family to become enemies? James gives the reason right after he says this, finishing verse one, is it not this, which is rhetorical, he's saying it's this, that your passions are at war within you. Verse two, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And so James is saying, listen, what is causing this bloody and destructive fight to go on between you is that you have these passions inside of you, these desires inside of you that are running crazy in your heart. Now at face value, the, 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 the word for um, for pleasures here, or what it says, passions, some translations say pleasures, is this, this Greek word for desires. And then we all have them. So he's not saying just because you have a desire, all these things happen. But in context of verse two, he says that these desires are selfish and ultimately sinful desires. So, so this is what James is saying. The destructive fighting that's happening between you all is because you have selfish desires and you're choosing to act on them and satisfy them. And so these Christians that James is talking to, they're looking at other Christians around them and what they see, instead of seeing them as brothers and sisters in whom to love and sacrifice for, they see them as people that have what they want and they become jealous of them. And this jealousy leads them to scheme and to fight and to ultimately commit murder in their hearts. And you may be like, oh no, I've never murdered someone for jealousy before. But Jesus alludes to this in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus speaking to, to, these, to these early disciples about what the kingdom of God looks like, he says this to them. He says, if you have anger in your heart towards another, you are guilty of having murder in your heart. And so he's saying, listen, you have this in you. And these Christians are destroying one another by consuming one another. They're they're using one another for their own selfish desires. And this, this is what James is going up in arms about. He's trying to get them to see this is not what you should be doing because these behaviors are destructive to the family of God. Not only is it hurting them, but it's getting in the way of you following after Jesus. You see, selfishness and Jesus are incompatible. Jesus and selfishness are incompatible. Jesus himself was the epitome of selflessness. Speaking of himself in Mark chapter 10, 45, Jesus says, the son of God came not to be served, but to serve. Therefore, any kind of practice that is attached to selfless, the selfishness is contradictory to the ways of Jesus. That's why the apostle Paul in in his letter to the Philippian church uh, says that the followers of Jesus are to do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than themselves. The practice of Christians consuming and using one another can only exist not in the kingdom of God, but where? in the world. See, this tendency, right, for people to use others for their own gratification is built into the infrastructure of our culture. Right, society champions the message of self-indulgence. See, self-indulgence says that if you want something, you have every right to it, so go and get it. And then humanity loves this message. And that they champion it because often there is a discontentment that we have with our lives. And so we like a message that says, yeah, let me go after the things that I want. There is no wrong thing to desire. And, what I, and, and as I've seen this practice happen more and more in culture, the irony is we often, we, all, we like to call, we like to use the word narcissism a lot, Right? Everybody's a narcissist. My parents are narcissists. My teacher's a narcissist. My boss is a narcissist. I'm not a narcissist, but everybody in the world around me is a narcissist. Do you know what narcissists believe? They're the center of the universe, that they're owed everything, that they should get everything that they want. And if anybody gets in the way of them getting what they want, they're the problem. The irony of it all is that this culture says everyone's a narcissist, but it's making you and creating you and forming you and shaping you to be a narcissist. And if it doesn't, and it gets worse, trust me, it gets worse. Because narcissism isn't too bad when it's like, okay, I want this thing and I'm gonna take it from somebody. But what happens when narcissists see people as something that belongs to them? What happens when narcissism interacts with interpersonal relationships? You see, when that happens, when narcissism or, or the self-indulgence uh, interacts with or meddles with interpersonal relationships, we start to see people as a means to scratch our itch. We start seeing people 
not as individuals to love or to know or to care with or to have game nights with or to do those things, but instead we just start to see people as a tool for pleasure. And this is the heart as to why the porn industry is, 15, is worth $15 billion. Because you have men and women that have this sexual desire that's, that, that is normal to, to be expressed, that have a normal sexual desire, and the world tells them that it's so normal that you should, you should get it fixed, at, well, not fixed, but you should have it satisfied at any cost. And even though pornography is, if not the, the leading cause, if not one of the leading causes for sex trafficking, our culture tolerates pornography because it satisfies a need. And now we've been talking a lot about what happens in there and we think, oh, thank God that's out there, not in here. Now that type of behavior happens and can happen in the church. The practice of using others for your enjoyment and satisfaction. Some of you men and women here tonight are, are so lonely and, and albeit I was, didn't know if I used to use the word, but some of you are so lonely and horny that you'll use any opportunity to flirt with the opposite sex, all with the end goal of trying to feel desired by that person. You're using them, even though you have no intentions of reciprocation, you just want them to make you feel important. And some of you are dating and pushing the boundaries in your relationship and you're using one another to gratify yourselves instead of honoring Jesus with your bodies. And, and this extends beyond just sexual desires. We use people for our own satisfaction in a myriad of ways. We put people down so that we can feel superior. Sometimes we say yes. You know who you are. You yes, men and women. You say yes to every request, not because you actually care about helping people, but because you so desperately want them to feel like they need you, so you say yes, so they, can, so they feel like they can't live without you. And this list can go on and on and on. And what James is getting at and what I'm trying to get at, I know long-winded, but it is important to be said for our culture, is that when Christians introduce worldliness into their lives, it will inevitably lead to the destruction of the Christian community because worldliness will cause you to use and consume the people around you. And James continues then here with an interesting statement. Read verse three. It says, you ask not and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So he says here, listen, so you don't have the things that you desire because you don't ask God. But then he says, but listen, even if you did ask God, he wouldn't give it to you because you're asking incorrectly. You're asking with selfish motives. And what, what James is beginning to say in verse three is that he's unpacking the reality that when Christians engage in worldliness, it actually interferes with their relationship with God. And the reason for that is here, verse four, read it with me. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so you read this and right off the bat, you're getting a little defensive. He's like, you just called me an adulterer? Like, that seems a little extreme here. And if you don't know what an adulterer is, it's someone who cheats on their spouse. But, but, but James uses that term with great intention. 
He's actually borrowing language from the Old Testament prophets. You see, in the Old Testament, uh, God began this relationship with Israel in which that would, meet, would, 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 would reflect a marital relationship. He'd be like, I am your husband and you are my bride. This is the way that, that Jesus eventually speaks uh, about the church today, that the church is the bride of Christ and, and, God, and Christ is our groom. But, but going to the Old Testament... There was meant to be an exclusivity in relationship between God and Israel, like the way there is exclusivity between a husband and a wife. But that isn't how the story goes in the Old Testament. The people of God would slowly at first and then completely start taking on relationships with these idols, these false gods, and and, and God would send prophets out to the people of Israel and say, call them back to me, call them back to me. And eventually Israel said, I will not be in relationship with you. And at this point, Jesus, God calls them adulterers. You've cheated on me with a false and little God. You've broken the relationship that you have with me. And then James applies that language and that thought to his readers and to the church. He says the Christians he's writing to, right? That they might think, you know, double dipping is not that big of a deal. That it's, it's, there's okay to dabble with the ways of the world and, and dabble with a little bit of godliness. And it's not that big of a deal if we do it. But James says, no, no, it's a very big deal. You're cheating on God. When there's supposed to be an exclusivity between followers of Jesus and God. And as you engage in the ways of the world, what ends up happening is you start to strain the relationship you have with Jesus. You see, as I was reading this text, I just began to think like, what would drive a Christian? What would drive a follower of Jesus to ever step into a relationship with the world? Why would they continue to practice the ways of the world in their daily life? And as I asked myself that question, I began to think of the original audience. I was like, what would drive James's audience to, to be in a world that we just described as full of narcissists, people who consume one another, that live for their own needs with no care for anybody else? Why would these people want any relationship with the world? And here's why. It's because they thought God was unable to provide for them. You see, when you believe that God cannot provide for you, you will inevitably go to another source for provision. And in this case, it's the world. We can so easily become convinced that if God would simply answer our prayers, then we would be satisfied. Because that's what James's audience thought. Remember, James is talking to a primarily poor community. So what are they desperate for, you think? money, right? Like that, help them buy some stuff. But the community isn't only just full of poor people. They also had some rich people. And these rich people, you know what they wanted? They wanted influence in the church. So their prayer was like, God, if only you'd allow me to be a leader in this church, then I'd be satisfied. But how many of us have been in that same place? God, if you only get me this, then I'd finally be happy. God, if only you'd let me get married, then I'd be satisfied. 
God, if only you let me have this job or this promotion, then I'd be happy. God, if only you'd let me get into this college or this program, then I'd be happy. God, only if you give me this, then I'll be happy. And what you're really saying is that there is something other than God that can satisfy your soul. Prior to, um, I've been at Mosaic now for almost uh, uh, eight, eight, seven, seven to eight years. Sometimes Florida time just drags on. So it's about seven to eight years. Um, but when I first came here, I started serving as an intern and then as a worship leader and then as a worship director. But what I really, really wanted was to, to have a pastoral position. I really wanted to be able to teach and preach and, and just be able to lead a ministry. And I was like, man, God, like, this is what I think I'm called to. I really wanna do this. But really deep down, what I wanted was for people to recognize me. I wanted people to make me feel important. I wanted people to, to say, wow, Caesar's so awesome. Caesar can teach the Bible. Some of you have been friends with me long enough. You, you know that I was an arrogant butthead. Oh, okay. Uh, all right. Quarrel and battle now. Let's go. I'll see you outside. And eventually there, there was some talk that I overheard that there was a position opening and it was a position to, to help lead young adult ministry. And I was like, this is it. I'm like a shoe in like, like Joel and the other elders have heard me preach and I've gotten pretty, you know, pretty good at this. And, and really there's nobody else who's better than me for this role. And, and so finally we, we, were, we were told eventually who would take over young adult ministry. And I was like, well, that's interesting. They never told me it was me. And it wasn't. It was this, the guy who was uh, leading this ministry before I started leading. And Jade laughs because we talked about this. Because when, when I heard about it, I was like, this clown? This clown, they wanted him over me? Like, like what's wrong with me? Like, I'm better. Like, he, he doesn't, I don't think he even reads his Bible. Like, you know, these are the stupid things you say about others. Like, you, you, just, you, just, you just start saying stupid things. Truthfully, you do. Fast forward. Uh, Rachel and I, are, I got engaged. I'm looking for a full-time job. There's no full-time work here. The elders say, hey, it's okay. Listen, you are able to go and look out for work elsewhere. We'll, we'll help you um, write recommendations, whatnot, whatnot, whatnot. And eventually, as I'm offered another position, some of you may have heard the story, the same day that I'm offered a position to go uh, plant a church in Denver, Colorado, I got a call from our executive pastor at the time saying, hey, there's a role open for you. I think you'll want it. I think you should consider it. And guess what role it is? it's this role, it's to be the young adult director. And I was like, man, I don't know. You know, I tried to play it off. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I was waiting for three years. Yes, I knew. Yes, I knew. But you know, so I'm gonna pray about it. You know, so Lord, like your will be done, not mine. Like whatever you want. Four years this January that I've been leading this ministry. Beginning of January, 20, I guess that makes 2020. Yeah, because it's the year before, it's the year COVID hit. Day one, okay, day one. I made the young adult director. Guess how I felt? Just as unsatisfied as I was when I wasn't the young adult director. 
I got exactly what I wanted and still felt just as unsatisfied. And what James is saying here is, listen, it isn't just that worldliness is destructive and costly to the family of God. It is foolishness because what the world will not tell you is that even when you get the thing you long for and fight for, you'll be just as dissatisfied and unsatisfied as you were when you first wanted it. This is the foolishness of worldliness. And God knows this. He knows that the world can never satisfy your heart and my heart because there is an eternal need created and woven into our hearts. And let me tell you, that ache that you feel sitting in your seat today, is there because we, you, us, have both tried to satisfy eternal longings in our heart with temporal things. Some of you sit in your seats heartbroken because you've placed your faith in a dating relationship and now that it's over, where's your hope? And some of you have, are heartbroken because you've measured your life through the lens of your parents wanting to please them and satisfy them. And, you're, and guess what? They have eternal longings too. You don't satisfy them. So now you feel like a failure. Where is your hope? And some of you are heartbroken because you look at your life, you're about to hit 30. Maybe you're like, I didn't think my life would look like this. And you just feel broken and hopeless. But please hear me on this. You have an eternal need and there is a God, there is a person who can satisfy it and that is God alone. You need a person, a God, who can only give out things in eternal measurements. You need a God who can only give you things in increments of eternity, 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 eternity. Like how my bank, roll, my bank rolls are, I can give you a dollar, <laughs> But when God brings out his wad of cash, it's eternity, eternity, eternity. Jeremiah 31.3 captures the words of God towards us. He says, I have loved you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. God only gives things in increments of eternity. And even as you sit here, possibly dabbling with the ways of the world, or maybe you're trying to double dip a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of the world, Jesus is looking at you, directing his eternal love to you, his sons and daughters now. That's what verse five says. Look what it says. Or do you suppose, James says, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns, meaning of God towards his sons and daughters. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Do you hear? Do you hear? Now I just wanna talk, if you are a follower of Jesus, just give me your ear for a second. Do you hear how James talks about God's love for you? that he yearns for you, he longs for you, he desires relationship with you, he wants friendship with you, that he is jealous for you. And we hear that word jealous and you're like, oh, that seems like a little toxic, but it's not. God wants all of you and he refuses to share you with anyone and you should praise God for that. You see, he's so strict about these terms. The, the terms of agreement or the terms of engagement with Jesus is, listen, it's me, it's all of me or none of me. 
And he's strict about this, not because he's being a stickler, not because he needs you. He's saying this because he does not want you to experience, even for a millisecond, to be in relationship with anyone or anything that cannot care for you. But you see, we lose out on that experience of experiencing his love, his, the gravity of his eternal, everlasting love towards us because this is how we interact with God. We want the relationship or friendship with Jesus on our terms. You ever been friends with someone like that? It's what you say. I guess we gotta go there. I guess we gotta go do that. And you're like, but you know what? That sounds pretty bad if Jesus is in the driver's seat. No, it's not. Because Jesus' greatest desire for you is to experience the love, the hope, the freedom, the peace, the satisfaction that only he can bring. And what he's saying to you as you sit in your seat, potentially dabbling with the world, and he looks at you and he says, I don't want you to live a life of unsatisfaction. He's calling you back to himself. He wants you in the presence of his everlasting love. And with this view of God's love, James has now embedded in his reader's mind and he has it as he's penning these words, he's thinking about the everlasting love, the love from a God who yearns for us, who desires us, who wants us. And he says, listen, therefore, verse seven, Now, if you want to read one of the most unromantic verses ever, verse seven, in light of God's love, submit yourself to him. Mm. That's what I said to Rachel on our first date. It's like, girl, (laughs) just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. You hear that word and you're like, I I was down with that. I, I, I liked it. I like when you said, yeah, I love you. Yeah, love me. God loves me. I enjoy that. Why would James then move towards verse seven to say, therefore, submit yourselves to God? It's because he wants us to order our lives under his authority and will. And the only reason we don't like that is because we misunderstand what his will is for us. His will for you as followers of Jesus is to live forever in the presence of God for all the days of your life. This is the image we get of eternity with Jesus. Like he wants forever to be with us in intimacy, in closeness. Like he literally, like think about, think about how Jesus talks about eternity. He says that my father has made a house with many rooms. Like he's like, I don't even want you to live somewhere else. I don't want you like, I don't, you know, how, like, some, like if, you, if, if any of you get married or are married, sometimes you're like, the first thing I want to do is get away from my in-laws. No, but God's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to build a house so big that when you wake up in the morning, hey, it's me, We're we're gonna spend the day together. What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Because he's that, he's that 
immensely in love with his people, that he desires eternity with you, that he would create a city in which you and him would be there forever. It says, it says in Revelation that he creates a city in which his glory will shine, that literally his glory is so powerful and so amazing that you don't even need the power of the sun because his glory will shine the entire city. And it's getting this image that literally wherever you look, all you see is God and you're there face to face with the one who loves you eternally. This is the desire, the will for him. He says, submit to me because I want this relationship with you in which you get to experience all the joy and the freedom of being in relationship with me. It's not to bond you or bondage you or, or enslave you. It's so that you will experience the joys of why I even created you to begin with. It's that you and I would be together forevermore. And there will never be a day in which you will be unsatisfied. There will never be a day in which the world will entice you. You will never have to be brokenhearted anymore and there will never be any more tears. There will never be any more rejection. Can you imagine a world like that? This is the world that Jesus crafts for his followers so that he would spend this perfect world with us for eternity. But on this side of heaven, look, look, look what he says. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. And then he says this, is that my time? Am I done? <laughs> Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He says this because on this side of heaven, Satan will do everything and anything in his power to get you to break from experiencing the joys of being in relationship with Jesus. And this is what the remaining verses because he gives about 10 commands in verses seven through 10, but I just wanna draw our attention to this last verse, verse eight. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. See, the only remedy, James says, towards experiencing freedom and protection from the alluring, the, 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 the temptations of the world is intimacy with him. You see, when you spend more and more times with Jesus, you begin to experience the glories and the goodness that only he can give you. If you had, if you went to, anyone been to a steakhouse before? Can I raise your hands? Cool. Dang, <laughs> way more than I thought. I'm broke, I've never been to a steakhouse. When you had that steak, where you were like, man, I can't wait to have McDonald's. Anybody? Okay, that's good for you. That's fine. Don't ruin this for me though. Don't listen to her. That's the enemy. Listen, my analogy still stands. When you experience beauty and perfection and all that encompasses through the life with Jesus, you won't want to settle for second best. And so James's call for Christians, because it could be easy to be like, just reject the world, just reject the world, just reject the world to do more, do more, reject more, resist more. He's saying, listen, you need to be in the presence of God and draw near to him at all times to experience his goodness so that you won't be tempted to go for second best. What James is ultimately calling for is this. Remove anything and everything from your life that keeps you 
from Jesus. When Jesus came, I'll finish with this. When Jesus came, he came to a broken and dark world. Now, some of you, I, I, some of you just need to hear this again. Some of you have already given your life to Jesus and I just, I just don't, don't tune me out because just because you've heard the gospel message too many times, you can never graduate from the message of the gospel. But just hear this today. When Jesus came to the world, it was to a people that were far and distant from God, from a people who could not enjoy the experience of relationship with him. And when Jesus came and he lived the life we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died and he took on our punishment and sin and the wrath of God on, on his shoulders, it was that you and I would be able to have intimacy with God. And Jesus even demonstrated that in his life. Even, even when he was doing the miracles, even when he was doing the big stuff, he would often go and be with the Father because the big stuff didn't matter if he wasn't spending time with Jesus. And what I say to that is some of us get so enamored wanting God to bless us with things, thinking that these gifts will be something. The gifts are never better than the gift giver. Don't Waste, young adults, do not waste your life chasing gifts. Don't waste your life chasing temporal things. Spend every waking moment of your life pursuing and being in the presence of the one who created you, who saw you, who loved you, who died for you, and is waiting to spend eternity with you. Draw near to that God. Not the one that consumes you the way the world and Satan does but the God who would give up himself so you would have all that you will ever need. Let's pray. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use this message you just received and direct your heart completely towards him. If you wanna hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.